Uh, let me just ask you, does redemption win? Does it? Does it? You don't sound super convinced. <laughs> does the struggle end? <laughs> it feels that way, doesn't it? It feels that way, but it does. It does, right? Can God mend a heart that's frail and torn? Can he? Yeah, yeah. I was reading earlier this week, and um, another spiritual leader bit the dust. <laughs> surprise, surprise, huh? But we're not talking about just any spiritual leader. We're talking... I'm not, I'm not using hyperbole here. We're talking probably about one of the top three spiritual leaders ever to walk the face of the earth. Now your minds are just racing, aren't they? But we're not talking about Billy Graham. We're not talking about Mother Teresa. We're talking of the caliber of Moses. We're talking of the caliber of Jesus, nearly. We're talking about Elijah. Elijah, do you know this man? Do you know this man? This, this man who God raised up, it's not clear that he was even in Israel. It's not clear that he was a, one of the people of God. He was born in, in, on the other side of the Jordan. And, and, and he spent the whole of his life in, in Israel. Now, not talking about Israel as a whole. In the part of Israel that rebelled against God and built two false centers of worship and countless false altars to God all over the northern ten tribes. We're talking about this man that God called for such a time as that and, and became, became the personification of the prophets, became the personification of the people who would foretell the word of God. And, and you guys, I'm coming after you. I, I believe that you are called to be a prophetic voice in, in your family, in your workplace, in your world today. And so it's critically important that we understand what happened. Elijah crashed. The story is, uh, we'll be looking at it for eight weeks here. The story is found in 1 Kings 17 through 19. Uh, I'm going to go right to the middle of the story. And, and, and today we're just going to pluck out uh, of the middle of the story the depths to which Elijah crashed. And then, and then over the next few weeks we'll piece together how it happened and, and maybe what God wants us to learn from it. But I invite you to turn to 1 Kings uh, it's in the Old Testament, early on in the Old Testament. If you have a pew Bible, a, a, a maroon pew Bible, then it's on uh, page 301. And I invite you to follow along uh, as we unpack the Word of God here today. Again, I'm jumping right into the middle of the story. You will be blessed this afternoon. If you went back and picked up the earlier pieces, we will pick them up together in the coming weeks. But I want to jump right into the middle. You see, Elijah had this... This nemesis, uh, and and he was the king of of uh, Israel at that time. Again, I'm sorry, but there's two kingdoms right now: Israel and Judah, and. And the kings in the northern ten tribes had been progressively getting more and more wicked over time. And and each each time when you end with a king, the story of the king's life would be he did more evil than than the king before him, than his father, right? Then we get to Ahab. Does anybody have like a, like a flashback when they hear the word Ahab to Moby Dick or something like that? Um, but King Ahab, uh, the Bible says, was more wicked than all 
the kings that had gone before him. And if that were not enough, he had a wife whose name to this day is an epithet. If you want to really insult someone, right, uh, call them Jezebel, right? You see, Jezebel uh, was the patron. She was the financial support. She was the moral and even spiritual support for two major branches of false worship. Uh, one was the cult of Baal, or it's easier for us to say Baal in, in, in English. And, and it was the, the um, patron god of, of fertility, and especially as it related to the weather. Uh, um, they, they, they sacrificed to, to Baal so that they would have rain for their crops. And, uh, and the second one was the female counterpart to Baal, Ashtoreth. And, and, um, and the, later on we read Jezebel herself, uh, at her, it says at her table. I don't think it meant that it had a table that could seat 950 people. But in other words, she fed 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Ashtoreth at her table. She provided for it. So she, she is seriously involved in leading those ten tribes of Israel astray. And, and then God calls up, uh, uh, Elijah from across the Jordan into, this, uh, into these ten tribes. And, and we pick up the story in 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab... This most wicked of kings told Jezebel, his wife, all that Elijah had done. We'll pick up the story. But Elijah put to death those 950. In this amazing contest on the top of Mount Carmel, uh, Elijah challenged those prophets uh, to, to, um, to be stronger than their own God. The God who consumed the sacrifice with fire would, would be proven to be the God. And they spent an afternoon trying to get Baal to uh, prove himself victorious, and he lost. And as a result, uh, the people, their hearts turned. They didn't, the people didn't return, but their hearts turned back to God, to Yahweh. And Elijah had 950 prophets of, of Ashtoreth and Baal put to death. And Ahab tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Now I'm in verse 1. And how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She just drawing a line in the sand. In 24 hours, you're dead. You are dead, Elijah. Now this is the man who just um, prayed and for three and a half years, all rain stopped in Israel. Remember who's in charge of rain, according to the Israelites? Baal is, right? And, and, and Elijah prayed, God, prove yourself, Gloria. Stop the rain so that they'll know that, that Baal is an, an empty idol, that they'll know that this is a false god. This is the man who just challenged uh, the prophets of Baal to a duel and won. This is a man, as we'll see, who... who uh, raced down the mountain ahead of a chariot. He raced 17 miles. Those of you who uh, just ran 13, you, you know what he did. And he didn't train for it, by the way. And, and, and beat a chariot down the hill. And now Jezebel says, boo. And, and everything changes. Jezebel says, I'm coming after you, Elijah. She didn't even tell him herself. He was in Jezreel. 
She sent the message. By the way, what is that? Terrorism, right? Stronger than the actual act, right? The fear is greater than the danger. Isn't that? And and I say that because many of us are, are fearful right now. Might be about things happening in the Middle East. It might be things happening in your job. It might be things happening in your relationships. But, but the fear of it, the word of it, the possibility of it is more frightening than the actual reality of it. And, and Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And in verse 3, Elijah says he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. So Elijah and his servant, and we'll learn about his servant in the coming weeks, run for their lives 120 miles. Remember what he just did? He just ran 17 and beat a chariot, right? And then they run for their lives. I don't think they physically ran the whole way, but they, as quickly as they could, got out of Israel. And that was not enough. They got out. Beersheba is the lower end of the second country, Judah. And, and they got to the border of the second country there. And, and Elijah says to his servant, you stay here. He leaves his servant there. In other words, he's saying, I'm leaving my past behind. All my connections with Israel and Judah, I'm leaving behind. And he went yet another day's journey, however you understand that to be, 12 to 20 miles into the wilderness and, and came and sat down, and the Bible is very specific, sat down under a broom tree. Do not picture an elm. Do not picture a fig tree. Do not picture something glorious. Picture shrubbery. Picture a little shrub on the side of a wadi or a, 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 a brook. And, and he's crawling under the shade of that piece of shrubbery. And... and, and he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough. Isn't that interesting in light of what we understand enough to be? Isn't, it's, it is enough now, Lord, to take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and fell asleep under a broom tree. What's happening, beloved? What's happening for him? Many of you know because many of you are there or have been there. Am I making this up? His soul was collapsed. He's, he's overwhelmed physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And the only way out, the only way out that he sees is death. Now keep your finger there for a second. But he's not the first one to get there, right? David got there. Did you know that Moses got there? Remember when, when Moses was leading the people out and, and as quick as you can imagine, the people who he's just delivered from bondage to the Egyptians start to get critical of him. And, and, and Moses just has it. He, he, he says to God, God, take me now. Kill me. Numbers 11. Kill me, God. Um, he got to that place. Moses did. And David did. And Elijah did. I could make a strong case. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can make a strong case for Jesus getting to that place. So I'm going to say a word of hope to you. If you've ever been there or you are there, God's grace is enough. Elijah misunderstood what enough would be. He thought that it would be enough to end this. Isn't it, isn't it amazing how, how we, our perspective can get skewed? Do you remember, Chad, in, in college when you just were absolutely up against the wall and and 
and the pressure was so great and failure was imminent and and you thought uh, it would be so easy just to end this. I think you and I both talked in both of our schools. You went to Purdue. I went to UCLA. Many people did that. Why? For a grade? For a grade? But but it's not just students who get to that place, right? I mean, people lose their jobs or they or they lose someone that they care about. And, and, and you can be very easily come to that place where, where you say, it's, it's better, it's enough, God, just for me to die and to be done with this. It looks like such an inviting place. Why am I doing this? Because... Because you or somebody that you know goes there on a regular basis. And God's word speaks into our whole lives, not just the the fluffy parts, right? If you're here and you think, well, wow, everybody here seems to have it together. Anybody here got it together? I love love my dad's phrase. I thought I had it together, but then I couldn't remember where I put it, right? No, we don't. We are broken people just like you. We don't know what the future holds, and it scares us to death. We don't, we don't know what uh, our jobs will be like in the future. We don't know uh, what our relationships will be like. We don't know if God will take us to that wilderness, that place of no word, right? That's what wilderness means. That place where you don't hear God speak, and you go for a day or a week or a month or a year, and you're crying out, and you don't hear. You don't know if God will take you to that place. That's why it's so important for us to ground ourselves in these next weeks in what reality really is, what the total counsel of the Word of God says reality really is. And look at this reality. He's in the midst of the lowest point of his life. Physically, like many of you, he is absolutely depleted. Emotionally, he's so depressed, all he wants to do is is just sleep. It's just sleep. Spiritually, he feels forsaken. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And looky there. And that's that behold word, right? It's, it's like it's, this didn't naturally come. Everything stops. Look what happens. God comes in through an angel. God sends a messenger and, and touches him and says, arise and eat. That's my second favorite verse in the Bible. Arise and eat. My first one's coming. My first one's coming. And Elijah, in his groggy, sleepy eyes, looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. My favorite verse in the Bible. The angel of the Lord comes a second time and says again, Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. And Elijah arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days. Remember what he's been through already. For 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb. Do you remember that name, Mount Horeb? That sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? It's not Mount Sinai. Is it? The reality is, is that Deuteronomy, in the giving of the law, calls that mountain Mount Horeb. Uh, Exodus, in its account of the giving of the law, both of them parallel accounts, calls it Mount Sinai. Yes, this is the place where Moses was. This is the mountain where God in all his glory met Moses, the same man who also had gotten to that place. Right? That place of 
And for Moses, not quiet desperation, that place of desperation. And God met him. Do you remember that? And, and Moses said, whom shall I say you are? And, and God says, tell him I am that I am. Right? And, and oh God, if it's, if it's not too much, can I just glimpse your glory? And God puts him in that like, cleft in the rock, right? And, and he puts his hand over, over his eyes. Why do you think he did that? Because he, he knew that Moses couldn't handle the glory of the Lord passing by. Can you handle it? I, I have a hard time handling when our worship team leads us into the presence of God. God led Moses into the cleft in the rock, covered his face, and just let him see his backside go by the glory. And as a result, his face glowed. Glowed from being in the presence of God. He took him to Mount Horeb. Uh, we're going to pick up that story next week, and I, I really invite you to come because it's a story of life. Uh, but I want to just end today with um, looking at the second person now that's been taken to that same place, Elijah. I want, I want to uh, hear what God says to Elijah because it's going to come in t- a very important play next week. He brings him to that same mountain. You know, I, I wrestled with where is this mountain. Very likely the Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai is not where everybody thinks it is, right? But we don't really know where it is. Um, but it's at least 250 miles and possibly as much as 800 miles from Beersheba, where he started. So Elijah raced a chariot for 17 miles and then he went 120 miles to Beersheba, and then he went somewhere between 250 and 880 miles to the mountain of God. And he gets there, and God asks him a very, very important question. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And, and his answer to that question dramatically affected the rest of his life. And I'm going to believe that your answer to that question will dramatically affect the rest of your life. What are you doing here? Why did God put you on the face of this earth? Why did God allow you to experience all these things that you've experienced, the trials and the hardships, the betrayals, the pain? Why? Is he sovereign or not? What is God doing in your life? Why are you here? I want to suggest to you that it's going to be a wonderful story. A wonderful story of God's purpose for your life. It's going to be a wonderful story of what God can do through one woman, one man, one child, one student who says, I'm yours, God. I'll be that person. But to get there, we've got to go with him down there. For some, it's not a hard journey. I'm, I'm a, a relatively positive um, um, guy. I've been very fortunate um, because uh, it's not by any right of my own, but I've not, not had to enter into some of the deep depressions that some of you have. But I can see them. And, and I've seen a mother holding her child, having to entrust her, him, to a God uh, that he never heard the name of. I've, I've seen it in a, in a 
mother having to say goodbye to her three sons. Saying, I love you so much and I would want to spend the rest of my life here with you. But I've got to entrust you to the living God. I've got to entrust myself to him as well. Have you ever been at that kind of place? Here's the hope I have. What did God do for Elijah when he met them then? He didn't condemn him. Didn't judge him. Did you see what he did? He just gently nourished his body and his soul and his spirit. I'd like you to... um, I'd like you to follow with me through uh, the darkness for a moment. And I'm going to just plant a seed in your thoughts about what a difference that Christ can make with the very same circumstances. If you can see him in the midst of this. Mark, would you turn those lights off for us? God has abandoned me, and I refuse to believe that this broken body, this parched soul, this empty spirit will live. One has to accept a life of quiet desperation. Years from now, I can only tell my children not to believe that God can quench my thirsty soul. I was born in sin and conceived in sin. It doesn't matter to God that I live every day of my life in hopelessness. No longer can it be said that there's a God who hears the cries of his people. My whole life testifies to one truth. I am desperately alone. And it's no longer true that God saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now, I don't know much, but I know one thing for sure. I was born with no hope and without a future. But then I met Jesus, and he turned everything in my life upside down. I was born with no hope and without a future. Now, I don't know much, but I know one thing for sure. God saves those who are crushed in spirit, and it is no longer true that I am desperately alone. My whole life testifies to one truth. There is a God who hears the cries of his people. No longer can it be said that I live every day of my life in hopelessness. It doesn't matter to God that I was born in sin and that I was conceived in sin. God can quench my thirsty soul. Years from now, I can only tell my children not to believe that one has to accept a life of quiet desperation. This broken body, this parched soul, this empty spirit will live. And I refuse to believe that God has abandoned me. Is it possible? Go ahead and turn the lights back on if you would. Is it possible? Um that you've been coming at life backwards and the very same circumstances that seem to be sapping you of strength physically, emotionally, and spiritually, God wants to use to bring you life.
I want to invite you to this adventure of replenishment. God sees your circumstances. What did he do for Elijah in the midst of that? He fed him and he quenched his thirst, right? And he invited him to come into his presence. Early on in this series, I want to invite you to let the very real spiritual presence of Christ feed your soul. I want to invite you to let Jesus quench your thirst. I want to invite you to come into the very presence of God, to listen for his voice, and to have the whole outcome of your life changed as a result. Father, thank you so much for bringing us to this place. Father, thank you that you um, understand our brokenness, that you understand our weariness, you understand our thirst. And before we were ever aware, you had already provided for us in Jesus Christ. God, take this simple sacrament, this holy moment, and feed us, God. Take this sacrament and quench our thirsty souls. God, meet us in this place. And God, we will rejoice. We will trust. We will walk in faith as a result. But we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It is so interesting, isn't it? Uh, Matthew 17 records for us an amazing encounter. We've looked at it together before. In Matthew 17, we're told that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to a very high mountain. And on that mountain, uh, he was, what is the word? Transfigured before them, right? In other words, he did a fast forward. They were lamenting the fact that Jesus was going to say he had to die for them. And, and he's saying, I want you to see a glimpse of the other side. And for those of you in physical or emotional or spiritual aloneness or, or brokenness right now, God wants you to see ahead, right? He wants you to see what it's going to look like on the other side. And it is glorious, beloved. It is, it is glorious. I'm not just talking about eternity. I'm talking about what God can do even now as you let God's kingdom come into your brokenness and world right now. But who was with him? Who was with him on that mountain of transfiguration, right? One of the other guys who got to that very same place, Moses. Remember, Moses messed up, did he? Did Moses enter the promised land? No, he didn't. He's just like us. He he messed up. Uh, Who else was with him? Elijah. Elijah was with him, right? This guy who right now in the story is, is saying, God, I wish I was dead. There's life, beloved, on the other side. I want to invite you in wherever you are. If you're in joy, rejoice. God's all about celebrations and feasts. But if you're in a place of brokenness as well, then, then know this, that God has sent his angels to feed your souls, to grant you living water, to invite you into his presence. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, when he hit that low spot, and all the people, the 20,000 plus people who had once called his name, were now abandoning him, or worse, calling for 
his crucifixion on that very night. He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. Do you hear the angel? Elisha, arise and eat. Jesus said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There is some mystery that happens here. That God feeds you through this simple bread. After supper, he took the cup, the cup of redemption, the cup of promise, the cup that all of Israel had been taking for thousands of years, longing for the time when it would be fulfilled. And, and he said, this cup is the new covenant. The time has come. And, and beloved, it can come for you right now. The time has come. Do this, he said. Drink it, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, the Apostle Paul said, and drink this cup, you proclaim. Let me change that word. You prophesy. You speak forth the word of God. Lives are transformed. Come to the table of the Lord, wherever you are today. Again, if it's with joy, then come feast. God's all about feasts. But if it's a place of hunger and thirst, come. Come to the table of the Lord. Be glorified in these simple elements. Now take the simple bread and the simple juice and fill them with your spiritual presence. God, I pray that, that all who come to you, all who are thirsty, would find their hunger and their thirst satisfied. We love you. And we meet you in this holy moment. In Jesus' name. Our servers, please come forward. I'll beginning with those of you in the back, would you come to the table of the Lord?
If it's not one thing, it's another. Caught up in words, tangled in lies. You are a Savior, and you take brokenness aside and make it Take brokenness aside 